behind the scenes in NASA, so many things have to work right for us to be able to make a mission successful. Let's talk to somebody who has worked in many different areas of NASA. With my disability, people tend to make assumptions about what I can and can't do. I would say that's the biggest challenge. Hi, I'm Jim Green, and this is a new season of Gravity Assist. We're gonna explore the inside workings of NASA in making these fabulous missions happen. I'm here with Dana Bowles, and she works for the Science Engagement and Partnership Division at NASA headquarters. Dana was first hired as a payload safety engineer at the Kennedy Space Center in 1995. And since then, she has worked at four NASA centers in mission support roles and at least 10 more years in the human exploration and science divisions. Welcome, Dana, to Gravity Assist. Thank you, Jim, for inviting me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Well, I really want to know what really got you excited and wanted to work for NASA. So, you know, most kids would say, oh, I want to work for NASA, right? That's a common, common thing. But more specifically, when I was younger, uh, I, when I was thinking of all the different jobs to have, I thought an astronaut, being an astronaut would be perfect because it would, I would be in an environment where I wouldn't need the wheelchair. And the fact that I don't have legs was, would be okay. And in fact, it could even be an advantage, right? Because back then, you know, you're having to launch in these, these little spaces, these small spaces where you're all crammed in like, like sardines. And I thought, well, I'd be, I'd be in an advantage. I, I wouldn't need the leg space. And, uh, thirdly, I, I use artificial arms. So I, I was born without arms and I use my artificial hooks to, um, since I was two years old. So I'm pretty proficient in them. So I thought that's a third reason why it might be an advantage to hire me as an astronaut. Cause I could use my hooks you know, like the astronauts use the robotic arms. And so there you go. Three, three reasons to hire me. <laughs> well, uh, what was your biggest challenge, uh, you know, that you faced when you prepared for your career at NASA? One of the biggest challenges was, uh, you know, I was getting my engineering degree in, in the early 90s. And uh, still at that time, there were, there was a handful of us girls and women in the class, but we were largely outnumbered. And so that, that was a weird feeling, right? Being, being one of the few women and going through the major. Also, the biggest thing for me is with my disability, people tend to make assumptions about what I can and can't do. So I would say the biggest challenge in, in my success in my career and working at NASA or wherever is just having to always butt up against those, uh, those assumptions and limiting me so that I would say that's the biggest challenge is oh and it gets kind of tiring doing always having to to prove myself you know yeah but do you remember the time that you know you first came to NASA and how did you feel oh I I remember that quite well even though it was over 25 years ago it was scary I was going to the other side of the country I grew up in California and so here I was in Florida but it was a really it was exciting. It was scary. One thing that, that I remember quite well is the, the first months I was there, there were a lot of tours. And I'm sure you've been to Kennedy, and it's an amazing facility. And it is. my favorite was to go to the Vehicle Assembly Building. And 
you know, that building is what, 525 feet high. It, at the time, it was the second or third largest building in volume in the, in the world. And I was just in awe when I got to see that and know that this was the place where the orbiter was mated with the external tank and the solid rocket boosters. And, you know, looking at the crawler and learning all, all the, the process of, of what it takes to launch was just it was exciting. It was overwhelming and a bit scary, you know, the, the responsibility of that. But um, yeah, amazing. It was incredible. Yeah, that building we call uh, fondly the VAB. Right. And indeed, uh, I had never had the opportunity to be in it when they put together the shuttle and the external tank and, and then the solid rocket boosters in the building and then put it on the crawler and then roll it out to the right. pad. Uh, you know, but you see it on films and it's just not the same, I tell you. Yeah, yeah. Well, as a payload safety engineer, what was specifically did you uh, have to do? Is that for every shuttle flight or were there other things that you did along the way? So let me let me first define payload for people who don't know. The payload is basically it's the purpose of the mission. So it could be anything from an experiment. It could be a spacecraft. It could be the Mars rover, which which uh, recently landed, Perseverance. Those are all payloads. So at Kennedy, I'm I was part of the ground safety review panel. So we looked at the payload from the time it arrived at Kennedy until the time it launched and cleared the tower. That was kind of our purview. And we were assigned payloads and, and we would look at everything that was done to it for pre-launch -pre processing. So at Kennedy, it could be, it's everything from the time it comes through the gate and, it, and you take it from the vehicle and you put it on a stand. We had to make sure as the payload safety engineers did the sling, you know, what is the rating of the sling? And when was, it, when was it last tested? And so it's basically looking at everything we're doing to it from the time it comes in the gate. Is it safe for the people working on it for the from the facilities and from the uh, spacecraft itself? Because it's thousands and thousands of dollars that of the American people's money. So the, those are the things we looked at. Let's say the spacecraft has to be fueled then we had to make sure that all the procedures in that process, you know, that they had all the safety built into it. And then finally with launch, that was really exciting because we would have to be there at least a couple hours before launch so that if there was an anomaly on the pad, we could help the um, managers know what to do next <laughs> for the process and the procedures. Yeah. Now this included not only shuttle payloads, but uh, rocket payloads too. Right. So spacecraft that would be mounted on the top and then blasted into space. Right. In fact, I, I had one of my payloads was an expendable launch vehicle payload, the ELV payload. It was the Mars uh, orbiter. Oh, wow. Now from there, you moved to NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland to mm -hmm. work as a fire protection safety engineer. What led you to make that switch? You know, it was really hard to leave because I loved what I was doing at Kennedy and I loved the center. But coming from uh, San Francisco, it was a really big difference for me to, to live in that environment. I really wanted to be uh, closer to a more metropolitan area. So with Goddard, it made more sense because it was closer to D.C. and I had that access. And so that was my main driver is I just kind of I wanted a different I want to live somewhere different. Um, Goddard was, you know, I met some really good people and it was in the life safety code, ensuring that we met the fire protection 
was it was a good experience. I learned a lot, but I was there only a very short year and a half before I transferred to Ames Research Center on the West Coast. Well, how did that opportunity come up for you to go from Goddard and uh, Space Flight Center in Maryland all the way back then to California? So as I mentioned earlier, I am a West Coast gal. And <clears throat> so what happened during that that time that I transferred, um, my mom, my mom was in remission from cancer for about 11 and a half years. And so while I was at Goddard, her that was when her cancer came back. Uh, oh, wow. So that's when I decided I need to go back. And actually, the first year I was back in California, I drove down from the Bay Area down to L.A. 10 times in the year so I could spend more time with her. And, um, yeah, so that was the main driver, plus just the fact that I really like living on the West Coast a lot. So it was I was back and I was back in the Bay Area, which is where my heart was. So um, everything kind of came together perfectly. Well, what's really great about NASA is it has 10 centers in many different states across the United States. So yep. indeed, it gives you flexibility uh, to take your skills and ability and go and work at another center. Right. Well, what did you do when you were at Ames? When I first transferred to Ames, I transferred into the Environmental Services Division, and I was a an environmental compliance specialist. So I managed the center's biggest environmental programs in air quality, hazardous materials storage, and industrial wastewater discharge. And what I love about NASA is uh, we follow all of the environmental regulations. There's federal, state, and local laws, and whatever is the most stringent is what we'll follow. And so living in the Bay Area, that was a really challenging job. We had the most stringent environmental regs in the whole country. And so what that meant was I was mostly dealing with local regulators. Well, is there one NASA mission or activity that you worked on that really stands out in terms of something that you're really glad you worked on? Well, I, th I think when I, when I look at my entire career, I, I, I would have to say the payload safety engineer was the most exciting time because I was, that was the closest ties I had with the mission was as a payload safety engineer. Um, but I, I really appreciate all of my jobs I've had through my 25 year career have been really awesome. And I've learned a lot from each one of them. And another, another program that I was really impressed with being part of was the human research program. And that was a really, in my opinion, that was a really top notch program uh, of NASA. And it was a, it was an honor to be part of their team, more at the uh, program level, helping with all the elements, integrating them all, and um, also coordinating their uh, program status review every two years. So, so that was a that was an incredible experience. Wow. Mm -hmm. So you most recently came to NASA headquarters to work in the science mission directorate, and in particular, science communications. What got you interested in that topic? So what happened was when the call came out uh, through headquarters for people who were interested in doing details, you know, I, it's funny, I, throughout my career, up until this time when I did apply, which is this last time when I got it, uh, I had no interest in doing a detail at headquarters, but I just feel like the timing was just right. And not only that, but the fact, you know, communicating NASA to the public that's always been a great passion of mine. I mean, I, I do a lot of 
public speaking about NASA. And it's my favorite thing to encourage uh, youth to go into the STEM fields because we need our best and brightest if we want to stay in this, you know, in the space game, right? We have to be on, we have to have the best and the brightest. So it's important to encourage them. Well, in your work at NASA headquarters in the science communication area, you've been doing a lot of thinking about the search for life beyond Earth. And that's a huge topic of interest in NASA. In fact, last season's Gravity Assist, we talked about the search for life. Well, tell us about what you've been doing to support NASA in this area. Well, my first year of my detail, I helped to uh, create this toolkit. And basically it was, it's an electronic uh, resource for NASA employees. Anybody who has a NASA email could access it. And it's to help people so that they can communicate about the search for life uh, to the public. So it could be for people who want to speak about it. Like let's say an elementary school wants to hear about it. So if somebody was interested, they can go here and learn about what NASA's done. And also part of that first year, I helped, I led a, a team of experts in the search for life in kind of thinking about how can NASA be better prepared um, in making an announcement in the future about finding life beyond Earth. And so it's really, it's been an incredible experience just sitting with this team that we have, listening to them, just have very light, informal discussions about what can we do? What can we do to kind of help? And a lot of it is preparing the public on what we mean when we say certain things. And then there's another piece of it, you know, when the announcement does come up, what are some of the things we want to think about? In fact, uh, as you know, uh, you and I have talked about that particular subject on a number of occasions. It's one of my favorites. Yep. And indeed, um, NASA is doing so many things across many of the different centers and having a having a place where that can be accumulated and and brought together is uh, is really important. So in the area of search for life, as you're pulling together important information for all of us to use and leverage, what are some of the things that you think are perhaps misconceptions by the public in NASA's effort to find life beyond Earth? I think the biggest challenge in making an announcement is that people are going to hear it and they're going to immediately go to the image of the green little green Martians on, on Mars. Right. So a lot, a lot of it has to do with science fiction. And I think that feeds a lot into people's mis, misperceptions of what, what it looks like, what it could be. I mean, more than likely, you know, based on what we know now, it's, it's going to be microbial, which we're not even going to be able to see. So those are the things that are the biggest challenge is just, sensationalizing and not not to mention just the media likes to sensationalize everything anyway to make a good story so that that kind of doesn't help <laughs> when we're trying to be realistic about you know what it is that we're doing and how, and what we're finding out there now i've heard that you've been named an if then ambassador by the american association for the advancement of science Yes. So first, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> and, and and tell us what that program's all about. So If Then is an initiative of the Lighter Hill Philanthropies. And what she wanted to do was um, she wanted to encourage young girls, like middle school-ish age, to go into STEM. And so she thought, well, if we support a woman in STEM, then she could change the world. That's kind of their motto. So what, what they do, what this initiative does is it takes the talent agency model 
and it promotes all of the ambassadors. There's like 125 of us um, and it promotes us across the country in all these different venues and ways so that we can reach the most number of girls. There's a, a virtual classroom experience where you talk to classrooms, it's called Nepris. So they're one of the uh, collaborators with If Then and they get a lot of their speakers through the ambassadorship program. And there's show there's Saturday morning shows geared towards kids that encourage girls to go into STEM. And there's all kinds of different ways that they're promoting us. And it's just been incredible. And in fact, one really awesome thing is there was a study done in, in 2016. Uh, Rosie Rios commissioned a study in 10 uh, largest cities in the, in the United States. And what they did is they looked at all the statues that are in public, in the public view. And they found that of all of them, less than half a dozen were of real women, non-fictional women. And so based on that, Lida Hill thought, you know, I'm going to change that. And so she took 3D scans of all of us and they're going to display full, si full size models of all of us all at once, all in one place. And it'll be the largest display of real women in science um, in, in the country, if not the world. Wow. That sounds like a spectacular opportunity. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, uh, middle school girls in particular, I guess, uh, that's a critical time for, for which they then make decisions about whether they're really interested in science or not. So seeing the role models, uh, seeing that they can uh, actually uh, uh, step up and make a career of, of these kind of science and engineering and mathematics that, um, that they may be good at uh, is really important. And I'm, yeah. and I'm sure you're, uh, you've really helped a number of kids along the way. Yeah, it's important. It's important they see, they see women like them, you know, because that way it gives them more of a, a reality check that, hey, yeah, I could do it. Well, uh, what's the one thing that people could do to really be a better ally for the disability community? Jim, thanks for asking that question. The one thing that people could do to be a better ally to the community is to not see us for what we can't do, but be curious about what we can do. So while people's initial reaction to disability is often neg negative and feeling sorry for us, they don't see that living this experience makes us better problem solvers. So by getting to know us first, without preconceived notions, the benefit is seeing the community for the beauty we bring to living life every day. Well, NASA really looks for a diversity of people because each and every one of our experiences, and that includes people with disabilities, brings a certain level of sensitivity and a certain ability to solve some of the most complex problems that, that you know, we really face if we're going to learn to live and work on a planetary surface. Dana, I always like to ask my guests to tell me what was the event, the person, place, or thing that got them so excited about being the engineer they are today in NASA. And I call that event a gravity assist. So Dana, what was your gravity assist? This was a really difficult question for me to answer. You know, at first I, I thought, well, of course it's my mom. She's the one who gave me my backbone. 
She she helped build my confidence. And then and then I thought, well, then it could be the, the principal and the teachers who mainstreamed me at such a young age. It could be my father who, not knowing him for the first 39 years of my life, when I do find him, I find that he builds spacecraft models for a living. So when I look at all this, you know, I would say, if I had to narrow it down, I would say it would be people. You know, it's the my, my family, my friends, my mentors, all of that kind of helped to give me the gravity assist to come to NASA and to be successful. Dana, thanks so much for joining me and discussing this fascinating topic of all the activities that you've been doing in NASA. Thank you, it was a great honor. Well, join me next time as we continue our journey to see what happens underneath the hood in NASA. I'm Jim Green, and this is your Gravity Assist.